chapter 4. Really enjoying the Gospel of Luke. It's, a, it's just such a special and unique uh, book among all the Gospels as we shared last week. And if you weren't here last Wednesday, you'll want to get that CD and listen to it because I gave a lot of introductory material and things like that, as well as covering the first three chapters. Chapter 4 picks up where um, Jesus is tempted by Satan. And this is a tough thing to understand because you think if Jesus couldn't sin, how could he be tempted? And yet the scriptures make it clear. Hebrews says that he was tempted in everything as we are, yet he didn't sin. So he did that so that he would understand. He knows exactly what it feels like to, to want to do something that's wrong, even with everything that he knew. So it lets us know that if we're tempted, it's not that there's something wrong with us. Um, it's not that there's a weakness as to why we are tempted. It's that we need to have that insight that helps us to know how to, how to deal with that. And it, it says that Jesus being filled with the Holy Spirit, and that's your first clue. If Jesus needed to be filled with the Spirit, in order to handle the temptation that he was going to face, how much more do we need to be filled with the Spirit? And Luke just harps on the Spirit and being filled with the Spirit constantly. That was a huge emphasis for him because, as you know, he got saved later and wrote the book of Luke and the book of Acts, and he, so he knew all about the transformation of the disciples, and now he's writing this letter in light of what he knew, and he realized what an important role the Holy Spirit had. So Jesus was filled with the Holy Spirit, and he returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, being tempted for 40 days by the devil. And in those days, he ate nothing. And afterward, when they had ended, he was hungry. So the Spirit led him into the wilderness. And that brings up an interesting question. In fact, someone asked me this question today when they were reading in Matthew. Um, and there it actually says, it's worded a little bit differently, and it says the Spirit led him into the wilderness in order to be tempted. And the translation can be somewhat nebulous. But at any, at any rate, whether the Spirit led him to the wilderness specifically to be tempted the Spirit was definitely with him, knew that was going to happen, allowed that to happen. And God doesn't, doesn't test anyone above what they are able, but he does allow us to be put in difficult situations. Why? To prove our character. And Jesus needed to, needed to prove, not to himself or not to God, but so that everyone else could see, he gets it. He knows what we're going through. And so the Spirit was with him, in doing this. And just because you're tempted doesn't mean you're out of the Spirit. He was filled with the Spirit. Spirit led him 40 days. And prob probably he was being tempted that entire time. But what we have here and in the other synoptic Gospels is the culmination of the temptation, kind of its, its, its peak. So 40 days he's not eating and He's being tempted. He's being tested. A rough 40 days. And it said, man, after 40 days, he was hungry. And Luke, as a doctor, was always really interested in physical details and things like that and, and medical details. And so he was pointing out Jesus was 
at the point of, you know, in danger of just malnutrition completely after 40 days. Um, it's a good reminder to each of us as well that when we find ourselves in a state of weakness, often that's when the devil will choose to bring out his best stuff against us. Um, when you're tired, when you're hungry, when you're lonely, when you're depressed, often those are the times when the assault just kicks up, and so you just have to be ready for it. But that doesn't mean that you have to give in to it. It doesn't mean that you lose. It's actually an opportunity for God to show things that he couldn't show any other way, that despite the opposition, you are able to stand and you're able to obey. And so often our faith is being tested for a real positive reason, and sometimes we don't, we don't see that. But Jesus was hungry, and the devil comes to him with three different kind of approaches here. First of all, the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. Now, Luke had mentioned that he was hungry, 40 days hungry. And now the devil's just telling him, you hungry? You could make those rocks into bread. Why not? In the process, I mean, you're the son of God, right? So you could do that. You could do miracles. And Jesus hadn't really been doing a bunch of miracles up until this point. So Satan's trying to bring him out, but also just using Jesus' state of weakness to take advantage of him. And this is an example of, well, over in, in 1 John, um, in 1 John chapter 2, John says, Love not the world, neither the things which are in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father isn't in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life are coming from the world, not from God. So three types of temptations that John uses in 1 John 2, there are three assaults here, and um, you can also compare this with, with Genesis chapter 3 and Eve, and Satan there used three tactics that were similar and related to this. And it's just interesting that the devil doesn't have anything new and creative. You know, he, he's always pretty much tried the same stuff. And so first he goes after the flesh. How are you feeling? Are you feeling hungry? You can fix this. And he does this with us in many different directions, but Jesus responded by quoting the Bible. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. And so he, he had an answer for him, and he answered in each case with the word of God. So the devil gave up on the lust of the flesh. He goes, what, what do I do? So then the devil took him up on a high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, all this authority I will give you and their glory, for this has been delivered to me, and I will Give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you will worship before me, all will be yours. Now he showed him beautiful sight, the cities that laid out before him, and offered him an alternative to what he was going to have to do. And he said, look, just bow down to me, and you'll have it all. And this kind of correlates with what John calls the lust of the eyes. The, the need for power, the desire to have the desire to possess, the desire to take a shortcut in order to possess. And when Eve was in the garden, at first it looked 
good to eat. And then she said, well, it looked like it would taste good. And then it also just looked like it was something that was attractive. And so this is what Satan is offering here. And Jesus responds in verse 8 by saying to Satan, Get behind me, Satan. For it, Same thing he said to Peter, by the way, later. Get behind me, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. He said, I'm not going to take a shortcut. Worship is only for God. I'm not going to worship things. I'm not going to worship something because it looks attractive. Then he brought him to Jerusalem. And we don't know how Satan could take him from different places. He had come out of the area of the Jordan Valley, and then he's in the wilderness, and now he was able to show him Jerusalem. But it may be that, that um, either because God gave him the ability or perhaps angels have the ability to kind of transport themselves, we don't know. But he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, and now Satan quotes scripture, He shall give his angels charge over you to keep you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Appealing to Jesus and saying, You're in Jerusalem. It's the temple. You're the Messiah. How cool would it be if you just dive down and angels catch you and pick you up? Appealing to his pride, appealing to, again, another shortcut for what he actually came to do. And so other people have mentioned that these three um, areas of temptation dealt with the physical, the psychological, and the spiritual. Um, But At any rate, another approach, and notice that Satan is fully capable of quoting Scripture, uh, Scripture that he quotes wrong. He quotes it inappropriately and out of context, but there are a lot of the devil's uh, workers who can use Scripture to, to promote their specific end. But Jesus answered and said to him, It's been said, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. And so he was done. When the devil had ended every temptation, interesting interesting statement there that apparently over these 40 days was perhaps when Jesus was tempted with every sin possible. He, again, like I said in Hebrews, it says that he was tempted in everything as we are, yet without sin. So Satan actually ran out of stuff. He couldn't think of another thing to tempt him with, and he departed until an opportune time. He would be back. Satan wasn't finished, but he realized this wasn't the time, this wasn't the opportunity. And then Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. I love that. And we will find that the path to the power of the Spirit starts with being filled with the Spirit, but it will also often go through an area of temptation, an area of difficulty. And when we pass those tests, when we come out of it right, the power of the Spirit is a result, a power that you couldn't have received any other way. And so that's a nice thing that he mentioned. And news of him went out through all the surrounding region, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. Everybody 
around the Galilee just thought, Jesus is amazing, this is great. Looked like things were going pretty well, but now he heads down to his hometown of Nazareth, and he got a little different reception there. Nazareth is a little south of the Galilee area. It would still be considered a part of you know, the southern Galilee, but it's not. Uh, later, he's going to end up going up to Capernaum, which is at the north end of the Sea of Galilee, and uh, Nazareth is further south than, than the Sea of Galilee. And so he went to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. It's interesting that Jesus had the habit of going to synagogue. In those days, they would let all kinds of different people teach in the synagogue. Some of it was bad teaching. None of it was great teaching. And yet, Jesus faithfully participated in the synagogue worship. He went anyway. It's a reminder to us of how important it is that we are in regular fellowship, that we worship corporately. Again, if, if Jesus chose to do that, then our typical American notion of just kind of an independent relationship with God that doesn't involve assembly, uh, doesn't involve other people, um, we have a problem with that. Even if the only choice you have in a church is a bad church, that was kind of what Jesus was dealing with, but he went anyway in order to be with, with the people and to, and to worship God. And he was, he was used to that. I hope we all develop the custom of just every weekend, at least, just be in church. And so he got up to read. And they would let guest rabbis uh, get up and share, things like that. And so he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, or literally unrolled the scroll, he found the place where it was written, Jesus began to read this from Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And then he closed the book gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him, and he began to say to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Interesting. Because he stopped in the middle of a sentence, in the middle of a verse, actually. And that's why they were looking at him like, Huh? What are you saying? If you, if you turn back to Isaiah 61... This gives us a fascinating insight into Jesus and his ministry. Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, comma, and he closed the book. The rest of the verse says, and the day of vengeance of our God. And the chapter goes on to talk about Jesus coming to judge the world and to set up his kingdom. So Jesus knew what they didn't know, what they couldn't have imagined, that Jesus was going to come twice. 
that he would come and proclaim the acceptable day of the Lord, but that there was yet another coming where he would come in order to fulfill passages like, oh, you know, Psalm 2, where he talks about, you know, why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand against the Lord and against his anointed. And it says, he that sits in the heavens will laugh. He'll have them in derision. He'll smash them with a rod of iron like a potter's vessel. He wasn't going to do that yet. But they couldn't even conceive of how Messiah wouldn't come without doing that. And so here in, in Luke's gospel, Jesus, he makes it clear that Jesus stopped in the middle of verse and everybody's looking at him. And he said, today, this is being fulfilled right in your midst. This part of it. The rest is yet to come. But if he fulfilled the first half of Isaiah 61-2, you can be assured he will fulfill the second half. So all bore witness to him and marveled at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. That's a nice thing to say about someone who is sharing the word. I mean, and I would hope that somehow, as somebody who teaches the Bible a lot, I hope that always, that like for Jesus, that people would go away going, wow, that was really gracious. That, that wasn't just offensive. It wasn't challenging in a way of, of you know, trying to force me to do something different. When, when we share like Jesus, and this is true of every conversation that you will ever have, and any time you ever um, have a chance to talk to somebody about the Lord, you're sounding like Jesus if they walk away going, you're really nice. You're really gracious. I, I really appreciate that. And they did in Jesus. But then they start going, wait a minute, isn't this Joseph's son? They were stumbled because he was from their town. And so Jesus goes on to say, you'll surely say this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. Whatever we've heard done in Capernaum, do also here in your country. He said, I know what you guys are going to do. You're going to want to see more magic tricks. You know, here I do them, and now you just want to see them because you don't really believe what I'm saying. And then he said to them, assuredly, I say to you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. But I tell you truly, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, and there was a great famine throughout all the land, but to none of them was Elijah sent, except to the area of Zarephath, in the region of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them were cleansed except for Naaman the Syrian. So Jesus says, you know, people never appreciate people that they know. A prophet is not without honor except in his own country, and you'll find this out. A lot of times other people will listen to what you have to say, but your own family maybe won't in the same way because they remember you when you were a kid or you know they're threatened, there's a sibling rivalry or whatever's going on. But Jesus let them know. He goes, I'm not going to play that game with you. And he said, think about in the time of Elijah when the, it didn't rain for three and a half years, there were a lot of widows who went without, but there was one widow that God sent Elijah to. And that widow was a Gentile. And then he said, 
A lot of people had leprosy in those days, but it was a Syrian, Naaman, who actually was healed. And so the implication was, in a greater sense, God's always had a hard time getting through to his own people. And so he may have to go outside his own people in order to get someone who will believe in him and listen to him. And that really made them mad. You know, how could you even suggest that, that Gentiles have a greater sense of, of uh, faith in God than we Jews who know God? And yet, it's true today. It always has been true. Um, and thank God there are some Jews who do come to know Jesus as their Messiah, but by far most people who have come to know Jesus are Gentiles. Um, and not only that, often they come to know him outside the realm of organized religion sometimes. When God wants to do a fresh work, he, he often kind of breaks the mold and doesn't come to all the deeply religious scholarly people, but he tends to reach out to those who are a little more desperate. And so Jesus is making that point, but they just got mad. All those in the synagogue, when, imagine saying this in the synagogue, when they heard these things were filled with wrath, and they rose up and threw him out of the city, and they led him to the edge of a cliff on which their city was built that they might throw him down over the cliff. They had had enough. This is a tough crowd. <laughs> You get up, you can say anything you want, but if they don't like what you're going to say, they're going to go throw you off a cliff. But then passing through the midst of them, he went his way. He just like, got stuff to do, see you guys, and just walked right through them. And they're like, wow, that was interesting. <laughs> then he went down to Capernaum, which is, by the way, by a map, it's up to Capernaum. But the Jews consider Jerusalem as up and everything else in relationship to that. So he went north from Nazareth to Capernaum, which is up at the top of the Sea of Galilee, um, but they call it down. And uh, went to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and was teaching them on the Sabbaths. There in Capernaum is, are the ruins of a synagogue um, in those days. Um, and it's interesting, I've taught there in that in, that, uh, in the synagogue ruins, and it's really amazing to think of what the kinds of things that happened there. Also there in Capernaum, you'll have to go with us sometime and see it, but there's one of the first churches, a house that was believed to be Peter's house, and it was probably where the church in Capernaum met. So those of you who have been to Israel remember seeing those things. They were astonished at his teaching, for his word was with authority. He wasn't saying, well, I don't know what this means, but here's a few thoughts. I mean, he wrote it. He had no problem saying, here's exactly what it means. And they hadn't heard that kind of teaching before. And so uh, it says, um, his word was with authority. Now in the synagogue came a man who had a spirit of an unclean demon. He cried out with a loud voice and said, let us alone. What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Um, several times demons would call out and say exactly who Jesus was. And uh, Jesus would always tell them to shut up. Um, probably partly because he really didn't need a demon to be his advertising agent. 
Um, but some of it had to do with the fact that it wasn't really time for that to be revealed. And part of it may have been that they were being sarcastic too. We don't know. But at any rate, Jesus rebuked him and said, be quiet and come out of him. The demon threw the guy down on the ground, came out, but the guy wasn't hurt at all. They were all amazed and spoke among themselves, saying, what a word this is. For with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And the report about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. He was getting quite a reputation. Then in verses 38 and 39, he left the synagogue and went to Peter's house, which is a stone's throw from the synagogue. And uh, his, his mother-in-law was there, sick with a high fever. And they, it says, they made request of him concerning her. It doesn't say Peter did. Um, so I don't know, make whatever you want of that. But somebody <laughs> said, Peter's mother-in-law is sick. And so he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she arose and served them. That, that must have been an amazing scene. And then he goes on, and all kinds of people were being healed. The sick with various diseases brought them to him. He laid hands on every one of them and healed them. Demons came out, some of them crying, You're the Christ, the Son of God. And he, rebuking them, did not allow them to speak, for they knew that he was the Messiah. And now when it was day, he departed and went into a deserted place. Jesus was often trying to go get away from the crowds. The crowds followed him everywhere, but he was often trying to go spend time alone with the Lord. And this is one of those times, and typical, the crowd sought him and came to him and tried to keep him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also, because for this purpose I have been sent. Jesus had his own agenda, and he did not let even the needs of people the desires of people, the hunger of ministry, take him off his calling. And see, usually, and we all struggle with this at one time or another, where we know what God has called us to do, and then the rest of our life gets filled up with just a bunch of other stuff that's good stuff. And usually, we don't fill our lives with bad stuff, but we fill our lives with good stuff. And Jesus could have stayed there and kept healing people, had a ministry in that area, and there would have been no limit to how big the church could have grown in that area. But Jesus understood that the enemy of the best is always good, not usually bad. And so he had to draw a line and say, I know you want me to do this, and I'm not putting down your need, and I'm not putting down what you want, but... Sometimes it's important for me to just tell you what God wants because I, I've heard, I'm going off to spend time with him and I've heard from him and you don't set my agenda, Jesus would say. And this is so important because you will absolutely kill yourself trying to do good things that other people want you to do. And what that does is your, your, your calendar fills up so much that you don't even have any discretionary time in case God gives you a fresh opportunity or there's somewhere else that he wants to lead you. I have had to learn sometimes really painfully that in leading the church, if I share with people what I feel God's telling me, sometimes people don't believe, don't believe that that's God because they think they hear from God. 
I'm not sure how people think that if God wants to speak to a church that he would go to them instead of to the pastor, but people tend to do that. And sometimes even, honestly, because I don't push my way and I'm not a real ambitious guy or anything, a lot of times people will start to think that, you know, I really need them to tell me what to do. And then if I don't do what they want me to do, it's often something that they find is very upsetting. And, you know, when I see what God does, I just go, that was painful, but I'm really glad I did what God did. Recently, with us really stressing home fellowships, the fruit that I've seen from that is absolutely unbelievable. But I didn't have a whole lot of company. I had a few guys who thought, this is great. And I had a ton of people who were whining about their pet ministry that I said couldn't meet, or, oh, but we need this, and we need that, and we need the other thing. But the ultimate test is, do I try to please everyone and do what everyone thinks so that we end up with 10 jillion programs that fills everyone's life and you don't ever even have a chance to breathe? Or do I listen to God and go, I only want to do what I know God's calling us to do. I don't just want to do a bunch of stuff. And Jesus had this amazing capacity, and that's why he had so much time to go pray. And, and that's why he waited 30 years before he even went in the ministry, because he had this ability to hear from the Father, and he spent time in prayer to know that he was hearing from the Father. And then he really, not in an offensive way, but in reality, he didn't really care that much what other people's opinions were. And he was able to even look at a need that was pressing and realize that's not a need that I'm supposed to meet right now. And I'll tell you something, it's one of the biggest lessons that you'll ever learn in life, and certainly as a Christian, is that just because there's a need, just because there's a good cause, doesn't make it your cause or your need. We need to learn to hear from God. We need to learn to do less so that we are able to be more effective in that which we do. And sometimes that's just going to mean, I'm sorry, but I don't think I'm supposed to help you. I know some people who are totally burdened because their families are real needy, and they have relatives that are just depending on them. And you assume, of course, if I have a relative and, and they're hurting, I must be the one to help them. But like Jesus said, a prophet is not without honor in his own country. Your relatives are only going to listen to you generally as long as you do what they want you to do. And as soon as you don't, you're going to find out where they're really coming from. And there are probably some people in here tonight, maybe not many of you, but, but some of you who need to hear God say, they aren't your problem. They're they're good people, you love them, they have needs, but their needs are not automatically your need. Their emergency isn't your emergency. And otherwise, we'll just completely burn ourselves out. We'll be day and night trying to fulfill needs and we'll never run out of needs. And the truth is, what we'll do is sacrifice ourselves in the name of God, and God's just going, did I tell you to do that? Jesus said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So understand this. If your yoke is not easy and your burden is not light, you picked up some other stuff along the way. And they may be great stuff. They may be things you care about deeply. But if they're not your stuff, set them down. 
and only answer to God. Only go get alone with him and you do what he is telling you to do. Don't do what I'm telling you to do. Don't do something because it's in the bulletin. Don't do something because it's crying out for you or because you're the perfect person for it or because you... No, do what God calls you to do. Nothing less, but nothing more as well. And Jesus is, throughout the gospel, just an awesome example of this. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Galilee. Now he, comes, he begins to contact his disciples. Now, We'll see him call some of them in this chapter, and then later in chapter 6, we'll kind of see the ultimate call for them. He actually called some of the disciples three times, because there was one time in Jerusalem where he first met Peter and Andrew, James and John, and he said, follow me, and they apparently followed him. But here he comes to them and tells them, they had gone back to fishing, and he comes and calls them to follow him again, and then later on in chapter 6, he finally says, okay, you guys are apostles. So it was as the multitude pressed about him to hear the word of God that he stood by the lake of Gennesaret. That's another name for the Sea of Galilee, what we usually call it. It was also called the Sea of Tiberias, all the same body of water. If you think of a map of Israel, it's the lake that's up in the north part of Israel. And then the Jordan River flows down from it and goes to the Dead Sea down in the southern part of Israel. So he was there, and he saw two boats standing by the lake. But the fishermen had gone from them and were washing their nets. So there were a couple empty boats, and so he got into one of the boats. And it just happened to be Simon's. It happened to be Peter's. Now, don't think of huge fishing boats. Sea of Galilee is a decent-sized body of water, but their boats were like a just a little bigger than a rowboat is today. And if you ever go to Israel with us, you'll see one of, the, one of the fishing boats, they call it the Jesus boat, but they dug it up a few years back, and it, it was dated to exactly that time. So then people speculate, maybe that's the actual boat that Jesus preached from, but according to Josephus, um, at the time of Christ, there were about 230 of these fishing boats on the Sea of Galilee. So... The odds of that one being special are, you know, a little slim, but it's still cool seeing what it was like. It would be a boat that would have four or five people in it um, catching fish. So he got into, into Peter's boat, and he asked him to put out a little from the land. So he, he, he took off off the shore because probably people were pushing towards him, and, and so he thought, well, if I'm in a boat floating offshore, that might be easier. And it says he sat down and taught the multitudes from the boat. In those days, the teachers would almost always sit down when they taught, which I really like. Uh, They would never stand up when they would teach. If anything, the students would stand up and the teacher would sit down. So we'll try that one night. (laughs) So he began to teach. And and then he uh, stopped speaking. And he said to Simon... Launch out into the deep and let your nets for a catch. Simon was cleaning the nets. They hadn't caught anything. And Jesus goes, let's go fishing. Come on. Row the boat out a little bit. Drop your net out. And Peter answered and said to him, Master. This is, by the way, the first place in the book of Luke that the word master is used. And it's not used by any other authors of Scripture other than just Luke in that way. Often the word Lord or Adonai you know, in the Hebrew would be used. And, and, but 
But this word for master is one that shows a greater level of respect and more of a formality. And, and Luke favors this word. Master, we have toiled all night and caught nothing. Nevertheless, at your word, I will let down the net. Give Peter some credit here. I mean, he's going, we already tried and we didn't catch anything. But there was something in the look on Jesus' face that then he goes, but let's go. <laughs> let's do it. And when you hear from God at his word, it's a good idea to just go ahead and let down the net. When they had done this, they caught a great number of fish, and the net was breaking. And so they signaled to their partners, James and John, over in the other boat. And they came, and both boats got full of fish, and it began to sink. And Simon Peter saw it, and he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Kind of a funny response that in seeing this miracle, he bowed down and goes, get out of here. But he was so in awe of what had happened and so aware of his own sin that he was just like, give me some distance, give me some space here. And there are a lot of people today who, when they hear about God and they see the power of who he is and what he has done, they have the same kind of reaction, like, I don't want to get too close to him. I'm afraid what would happen. I'm afraid if I, if I really submit to him and I really allow the Holy Spirit to do whatever he wants to do in my life, I'm afraid it's just going to get too intense. So we like God, but we like to keep him at a distance. And that's kind of where Simon was. He understood it. And um, for he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. And that's the same thing he would say to us. From now on, you will catch men. <laughs> of course, they didn't understand that at all, but they go, okay, this sounds interesting. And they, they began to follow him. And then Jesus came along, and there was a man who was full of leprosy. And verse 12, leprosy was something that was an incurable disease, even though, interestingly, over in Leviticus, Chapter 13 and 14, there was a whole um, sacrificial ritual to go through when you were healed of leprosy, but nobody was ever healed of leprosy, but they had that anyway. Well, in this case, this poor guy who was full of leprosy, that was a medical description of it, that it was in its advanced stages. He was doing really bad. He probably hadn't been anywhere near his family for a long time or anyone else. He was required to say, unclean, unclean, whenever anyone got close. Imagine how lonely that was as your, as your flesh is being eaten away and, and, and you're, you're dying of this horrible disease and there's just nobody there for you. And that's the state that he was in. But he, he, from a distance, said, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Then he put out his hand and touched him. I love that. This guy probably hadn't been touched by anyone in years. But Jesus reached out and touched him. And he said, I am willing to be cleansed. That's just, that touches me. That's amazing. Immediately, the leprosy left him. And he told them, don't tell anybody, but go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing as a testimony to them, just as Moses commanded. However, the word got around anyway, and great multitudes came to hear, and they wanted to be healed by him. So, verse 16, so he himself often withdrew into the wilderness and prayed. 
Notice how the more in demand he was, that caused him to have to leave in order to go spend time in prayer. And again, if he needed to do this, how much more do we need to do it? And the busier you are, the more you need to pray. The more that God's doing in your life, the more important it is that you get into the wilderness, that you go off and get away, push away all of the needs and all of the demands and just spend quality time with God. At least Jesus needed it. Maybe, maybe you don't. But <laughs> no, you do. And so now beginning with verse 17 is this great story. Um, he was teaching and there were a bunch of Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting by, coming out of Galilee, Judea, and Jerusalem. The power of the Lord was present to heal people. And behold, men brought on a bed a man who was paralyzed, whom they sought to bring in and lay before him. They couldn't get in, the crowd was so great. And so they went up on the roof and took part of the roof away. And it says that they let him down with his bed through the tiling into the midst before Jesus. Again, uh, Luke has the greatest details. And when he saw their faith, notice he didn't see the faith of the guy who was, who was paralyzed, because it's really hard to tell that a paralyzed guy has faith. But his friends, by taking the roof apart and lowering him down, had faith. And sometimes a person who is healed, it's their faith that saves them. Sometimes it was just the faith of the person who prayed for them. Other times, like this, it was the friends who were praying for him. But when he saw it, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. And I imagine this poor guy is like, well, thanks, but not exactly what I came for. Not exactly what I was looking for. But the scribes and the Pharisees began to reason and said, who does he think he is speaking such blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? They were perceptive. They realized he is making a divine claim about himself. This is serious. And they were about ready to pounce on him, but Jesus perceived what they were thinking, and he answered and said to them, Why are you reasoning in your hearts? Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven you or to say rise up and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. So he says to him, okay, you're bugged that I said your sins are forgiven. It's easy to do that, to say that. There's no way to know. But wouldn't it be even greater if I could tell him to get up and walk? And if he did that, then you'd figure out that his sins are forgiven and he could walk. So he goes, watch this. I say to you, arise, take up your bed and go to your house. Immediately he rose up before them, took up what he had been lying on, departed to his own house, glorifying God. And they were all amazed, and they glorified God and were filled with fear, saying, we have seen strange things today. He goes, I told him his sins are forgiven. Only God can do that. Watch this. Boom. And he's up. And they were building a theological case, and he just completely blew all that out of the water by healing a man and declaring that his sins had been forgiven. And so now he meets Matthew. In verse 27, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi, or Matthew, sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. Interesting that the guy was working in a corrupt business, working for the IRS, and in those days... IRS agents 
worked for a percentage of whatever they could cheat people out of. So they were all crooked. They were all working for the Roman government. Jews hated them. Everyone hated them. And without even giving them a chance to get saved, Jesus knew his heart, and he goes, follow me. <laughs> and he did it. He left all, rose up, and followed him. And then Levi had this great feast in his own house. He threw a party for a bunch of other tax collectors and uh, sinners. And there were a great number of them, and they sat down with him. And the scribes and the Pharisees complained against the disciples because they were at the party. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered and said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Aren't you glad, sinner, that he came for us instead of just for the righteous people? There are some people who are so righteous they never do realize they need Jesus. But, he, you know, Matthew, the only friends he had were sinners. And so he threw a party for them, invited Jesus to come and the disciples because he wanted his friends to get saved. Sometimes when you're a new Christian, that's one of the best times to reach out to some of your old friends. Because after a while, they won't have anything to do with you anymore. But when you, be, when you first become a Christian, you have all kinds of non-Christian friends. And that's a good time. Just And you don't have to like explain everything to them. Just bring them to church or invite them to the Harvest Crusade or something. And, and just go, check this out. Um, that's all that Matthew was doing. And when the religious people took, found fault in it, Jesus said, well, you know what? You're really righteous, so I'm not here for you. I'm looking for sinners. Jesus is the one who would leave the 99 and go after the one lamb that had gone astray. And that was the emphasis of his ministry, and we would do well to consider that ourselves. Um, and then they said to him, Why do the disciples of John fast often and make prayers, and likewise those of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink? He goes, Man, you guys are partying, and we're fasting. We're really spiritual. And he said to them, Can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? Their weddings were huge feasts. And so you wouldn't go to a wedding feast where all the spread is there and go, okay, let's fast right now. He goes, that ain't going to happen. I mean, maybe the, maybe the bridesmaids would go for that because, you know, women don't like eating in front of other people. And so they go do it, you know, on their own. But men are like, hey, no, I'm not going to pass this up. But he, but he said... The days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He said, I'm with them right now, and so we're eating. The day's going to come when, believe me, they'll do without. The day's going to come when they go through intense pain, and, and they'll certainly be fasting in those days. That'll be an important part. But then he spoke a parable, and this is the first of 23 parables in the Gospel of Luke. He spoke a parable and said, no one puts a piece, cuts a piece from a new garment on an old one. Otherwise, the new makes a tear, and also the piece that was taken out of the new does not match the old. He said, if you're going to patch fabric, and this was before the fabrics that we have today that don't shrink, so he goes, you wouldn't take a piece of new fabric and sew it on old clothes, because when it shrinks, it's going to tear the fabric, plus it's going to look stupid. And he said, and no one puts new wine into old wineskins. 
or else the new wine will burst the wineskins as it begins to ferment, and it'll be spilled, and the wineskins will be ruined. Once a wineskin gets old, it gets hard, it hasn't been used for a while, you want to put new wine into new wineskins. New wine must be put into new wineskins, and both are preserved that way. And no one, having drunk old wine, immediately desires new, for he says the old is better. Basically what he's saying is, you guys are so entrenched in your ways that you like the way it used to be better than something that's much better. And so you're still hanging on to what is old and hanging on to your traditions. And okay, that's fine for you. But there's a new thing that God's doing. And if you're not open to him doing things differently, then you're going to miss out on what he is doing. And that's your problem, he said. You guys are so stuck in your tradition that you can't even see the Messiah when he's standing right in front of you. And this is a good thing for us to remember, too. You know, as you get older, you remember the past really fondly, and you just think those were the good old days. And somebody comes along and does something different than you've seen it done, and right away the reaction is, I don't like that. Because most of us are by nature conservatives, we, which means we want to conserve the status quo. But at the same time, because of the way God is, we should always be open to new possibilities, trying things different, starting over. We can't afford to get locked in. Now, you can get locked in if you want. And there are some churches that are still buried in the 40s and 50s, and that's fine. And God goes, hey, that's cool if that's what... You know, if that's what you're comfortable with, that's understandable. But don't be upset that God is working outside the boundaries of what you are used to in order to do other things. Often I see people in the name of ministry doing some things that seem kind of out there to me. And I try not to criticize it because I don't want to be going against something that's simply a new wineskin may not be for me, but hey, I, I give people credit for trying. I give people credit for wanting to serve God and trying something fresh. I really don't want to be one of those guys like the old guys when the temple was rebuilt in the Old Testament, and it said the, the young guys were so excited, we got our temple, and they built it, but the old guys were whining, going, oh, this is a piece of junk compared to Solomon's temple. This thing's just terrible. And they said you couldn't tell the difference between the people who were, who were crying for joy and the people who were crying for missing their old temple, except that it was all the old dudes who were crying for the wrong reasons. And God nailed them. And he said the glory of this cheesy temple is going to be greater than the glory of Solomon's temple. Why? Because I will be there. And sometimes... We allow the glory to depart, Ichabod, to be put over what we're doing because we just want it to keep going the way it's going. Life isn't that way. It doesn't work that way. And we should want to go wherever God's going and support whatever it is that he is doing and be encouraged by that. And that's what Jesus is trying to stress here. Don't think the old is better. The old is just old. Now it happened on the second Sabbath. Now, this is the only place this term is used, and we don't know exactly what the second Sabbath is, um, but they used to count off Sabbaths between the Passover 
and the day of Pentecost, seven Sabbaths. And so it could be that this is a term that they used. We just don't have it anywhere else. But anyway, it was a Sabbath. And he went through the grain fields, and the disciples plucked the heads of grain and ate them, rubbing them in their hands. This was perfectly legal. They would always leave some grain on the vines, and anybody who was a traveler or anyone who was poor or whatever would be able to go and, and pick enough to eat. And they just crush it in their hand and eat it. They do this still in Israel to this day. But they weren't allowed to do it on the Sabbath. And some of the Pharisees said to him, Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? Jesus answered them and said, Didn't you guys remember hearing about how David, when he was hungry, he and his men went into the house of God and ate the holy showbread? Um, For starters. (laughs) And he goes, Technically, it wasn't lawful for anybody but a priest to eat that bread. And then he said to them, The Son of Man is also Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus goes into this a lot. Throughout really all the Gospels, he, he makes this point. The point is this. The law is not something that is made to rule over people and restrict their lives. The law is made to enrich people's lives. And anytime you are applying the law in such a way that it's bad for people, you miss the point of the law and you are misapplying it. And Jesus does this in a lot of different areas. Over in Matthew uh, 5, 6, and 7 in the Sermon on the Mount, he, he goes into a series of things. And, and his point is, look, use some common sense in applying the law. Don't, don't just let, don't be a slave of the law. In another place, he said, man wasn't made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man. And so if you, if you are interpreting the law in a way that it just crushes people, guess what? You miss the point, and you're misapplying it. And that's what Jesus is saying. He goes, look, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. I think I know what it's here for. He wasn't saying, I can violate it because I'm the Lord. He's trying to teach them, and he's just going, I understand the Sabbath, So use some common sense when you apply the Word of God. Um, And you won't be in violation of the spirit of the law. There are people today who, for instance, and and this has been true throughout history, that the Scriptures talk about the importance of a wife submitting to her husband. And there have been people who told a wife that even if the husband is just beating them up, that you should submit to that that you should stay in an abusive relationship because the only two loopholes that we see clearly taught in Scripture are adultery um, or desertion of a non-Christian. So if your husband's a Christian and he treats you like that, you just have to suck it up and take it. Or if he's not cheating on you, then you better hope he does because that you're out. That's so stupid. Anytime you're applying the law in a way that would tell someone, You stay in a dangerous situation where you're going to get hurt? Come on. God expects people to have some common sense. And I think a lot of times we're still not comfortable with this. We're still more like Pharisees where we're like, okay, what do we do? What do we do? The idea you get from Jesus is, look, start with the basic assumption that God loves you. He's not going to ask you to do something that's completely destructive. Now, this isn't situation ethics where you can just make up your own rules. But the idea is, what's the point of the rule, and how would it apply to this particular situation? In another passage, Jesus said, if you had a 
one of your cows fell in a ditch on the Sabbath, you'd pull them out because that's your livelihood. So why can't you see that doing something to save yourself or as he's going to go into some healing stuff, I mean, Jesus just wants them to use some sense. So it happened on another Sabbath that he entered the synagogue and taught, and a man was there whose right hand was withered. So the scribes and the Pharisees are like, all right, I bet he's going to heal the guy, and then we'll nail him. For he knew their thoughts, and he said to the man who had the withered hand, arise and stand here, and he arose and stood. Jesus had a certain flair at times. And Jesus said to them, the scribes and Pharisees, let me ask you a question. I'll ask you one thing. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil? To save life or to destroy it? <laughs> they knew what he was going to do, but now he had them. Okay, what should you do on the Sabbath? Good or bad? Should you save a life or should you destroy a life? And they just choked on it. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored as whole as the other. Now, I had somebody ask me one time, you know, does that mean he stretched out his good hand and it became just like his withered hand? No. <laughs> stretched out the bad hand and it, it worked. And look at this. Instead of being excited about a guy who got his hand back, they were filled with rage and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. They began to plot his death even at this point. It shows how crazy these religious people were that they would, they would hate this kind of mercy, and they'd rather see him crushed. It's kind of like the way we are sometimes when some really hor like a serial killer or someone gets saved, and we're like, oh, shoot. <laughs> They're going to be in heaven? And Jesus is like, come on, man. I, you don't want somebody who's completely just been destroyed? You don't want them to have life, uh, abundant life? And sometimes we don't because we forget how withered we were. We forget what we would be like apart from Jesus Christ. And so he healed them, and they wanted to kill him. And now he, it, he calls the 12 disciples. came to pass in those days that he went out to the mountain to pray. Notice how many times this happens. And he continued all night in prayer to God. That's amazing. But he knew the next day he was going to be picking 12 people to be apostles. And so he spent all night praying about this event. In John's gospel, Jesus said, You have not chosen me, but I have chosen you. When it was day, he called his disciples to himself, everyone who had been following him. And out of all the disciples, he chose 12, whom he also named apostles, those sent. So he commissioned these 12 as apostles. We know a lot about Peter. We know a lot about James and John. They were the three guys that were always with him. We know a bit about Matthew because he wrote the Gospel of Matthew. Um, we know about Judas because he betrayed Christ. But most of the rest of these guys we don't know much about. But he called them Simon, whom he later named Peter. Andrew was his brother. James and John. Peter, James, and John were all fishermen. Philip and Bartholomew. Matthew, who's also called Levi, Thomas, who we know as Doubting Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, another James, Simon called the Zealot. He was a, he, and it's interesting because Matthew would have been totally 
you know, the Jews would have hated him because he was totally loyal to the Romans. And, and Simon the Zealot was basically a guerrilla warfare guy against the Romans. So those guys get plopped together. Judas, the son of James, um, or literally Judas of James, and Judas Iscariot, who also became a traitor. And he came down with them, and he stood on a level place with a crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and be healed of their diseases, as well as those who were tormented with unclean spirits. And they were healed, and the whole multitude sought to touch him, for power went out from him, and he healed them all. So he was on a, on a level place or on a plane, and now he preaches this sermon that's that's eerily similar to the Sermon on the Mount that we have in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. A lot of similarities, but a lot of differences. And some Bible critics use this to say, oh, look at the contradictions, because this sermon is different than that sermon. Now, two things I just want to point out to you, and I can't necessarily solve it all. This may be a totally different sermon. Um, because he, it seems that he preached this one on the flat land, on the plains. The one in Matthew 5, he clearly taught on a mountain, on the side of a hill. So these could be two different ones. And, and that's the way people usually deal with this apparent contradiction. They just go, of course, Jesus was an itinerant preacher. He probably preached a similar sermon more than once. That's, that's to be expected. And I, but I'm not completely convinced of that because... Chapter 7 begins with, after he finished his saying, uh, he went to Capernaum, and the centurion servant was there and got healed. When you go to the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, in Matthew chapter 8, exact same thing, that the centurion serv servant was healed there. However, I still don't have a problem, even if this is all the same sermon. I mean, he started on the plane, probably went and gave the sermon, because when you're preaching, you don't just say something once and that's it. So it could easily be that the whole sermon was much longer than either gospel records. And Matthew had, you know, parts of it and Luke had a compilation and other parts of it could have been excerpts from the same sermon, could have been different sermons, doesn't really matter. But he began with the Beatitudes, blessed are you poor for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be filled. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you, and when they exclude you, and revile you, and cast your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake. Rejoice in that day, and leap for joy, for indeed your reward is great in heaven, for in like manner their fathers did to the prophets. He says basically the story isn't over yet. And so you can find joy and happiness even when you are in these difficult times, because the story's not over yet, because you know God, and he promises that he'll work it all out. Now he addresses people who were doing well. Now he's not ripping on everyone who is rich or full, you know, um, or people speak well of them. He's probably pointing at a specific group of, of Pharisees who were thinking, we don't need this stuff. And he said, hey, woe to you. You're rich, but you've received your consolation. You've got your reward. Woe to you who are full. The day is going to come when you're hungry. Woe to you who are laughing now. And they'd probably start laughing when he said it. For you will mourn and weep one day. 
And woe to you when all men speak well of you, for so did their fathers to the false prophets. Good reminder to be cautious, even when we're doing well, to not set our heart on what's going well, and especially to be suspicious when everyone is saying good things about you. Um, If everyone's saying good things about you, either they don't know you, or they're not showing their true colors yet, or they're buttering you up to try to get you to do something. I used to, I finally thought it was too cynical, so I threw them out recently, but I used to keep a collection of cards and emails from people who at one time wrote and said that God used me in their life in an incredible way, I'm the greatest guy, I'm the smartest guy, I'm this and that, and then I had another one from them later just blasting me and saying what a horrible pastor I am. So I used to like to keep them together because it reminds me that you just can't take the applause too seriously. You know, it's really, you can't take your cues from what people say about you. You just have to kind of let that go and listen to what God says. But I did throw that file out anyway. I felt kind of bad. Um, So then he goes on and says, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who spitefully use you. If somebody strikes you on one cheek, which is the way they would pick a fight, give them the other one also. And from him who takes away your cloak, don't withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who asks of you, and from him who takes away from your goods, don't ask them back. And just as you want men to do to you, you also do to them likewise. Now, he's not saying that you can't defend yourself. He's not saying that you have to give whatever you have to anyone who asks of it. The golden rule is here, and the idea is you want to treat people the way you'd want to be treated. Now, that doesn't mean every freeloader deserves that you give them everything that you have, because that's really not doing them a favor. It's encouraging them in the same lifestyle that they've already chosen. And it also doesn't mean that if a guy comes in and he's attacking your family that you don't defend him. Uh, Jesus, in another spot, told the disciples, times are going to get rough. If you have two coats and no knife, you better sell one of your coats and buy a knife. And so, or gun, by our jargon today. And so, none of this in the Sermon on the Plain, Sermon on the Mount, whatever you want to call it, would exclude that. But what he's saying is don't take personal offense don't, don't just always be getting in fights with people because of these little challenges that they have. And don't hang on to your stuff. And if you do good to those who do good to you, well, he says, verse 12, if you love those who love you, big deal. Anybody can do that. Even sinners do that. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you, you know are going to pay it back, what credit is that to you? For even sinners lend to sinners to receive as much back. He said, don't do for people because you know that they're deserving of it. Sometimes just go ahead and take a chance on somebody. (laughs) Love your enemies. Do good and lend, hoping for nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the unfaithful and the evil. God wants to show His goodness even to people who don't deserve it, and He wants to use us to do it. So therefore, be merciful just as your Father also is merciful. Um, I'll go ahead and finish this chapter, even though we're a little late, so sorry about that. He goes on and says, Judge not, so you won't be judged. Give, be generous. A disciple is not above his teacher, verse 40, but everyone who is perfectly trained will be like his teacher. 
Be careful, you know, who your teacher is because ultimately the idea of education is to cause the student to become more like a teacher. And so obviously he's saying you're gonna, you need to be more like me. So look at what I do and, and pick up on that. Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye but don't perceive the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, brother, let me remove the speck that is in your eye when you yourself don't see the plank that is in your own eye? Hypocrite, first remove the plank from your own eye and then you'll see clearly to remove the speck that's in your brother's eye. Again, in the whole context of don't judge, he's saying, don't be going around trying to fix other people. Don't be constantly pointing out to other people what their flaws are. That's what little kids do. Adults don't need to do that. Chances are, if somebody's fat, they know it. You don't need to tell them, boy, you really need to lose weight. They know, you know, or wow, you have a really ugly scar on your face. Yeah, I think I noticed that. I looked in the mirror once and I see, or, you know. And so it, every once in a while, someone's really helpful in pointing out to me that I'm bald. Um, <laughs> thanks. <laughs> but you're ugly. So, you know, and that's kind of the idea <laughs> is, uh, you know, look, just you worry about you, I'll worry about me. People really don't need you to fix them all the time. Um, and so then a tree is known by its fruit. If you have a good tree, it gives good fruit. You have a bad tree, it gives bad fruit. And so out of the abundance of the heart, your mouth speaks. So a good person says good things. If a person is saying bad things, they're a bad person. And so he's just going, take responsibility for the fruit that is your life. And then finally, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things which I say? Wow, what a, that's a question that we could meditate on a lot. Why do you say Lord, Lord, and you don't do what I say? Um, I sometimes just sit and think about that and let God ask me that question. And I reflect on areas of my life where, I mean, I'm saying that he's the Lord of all. I sing the songs. But there are some times when I just don't want to do something that he tells me to do because I'd rather fill my life with things that people want me to do. But Jesus just goes, look, if I'm the Lord, why don't you just listen to me and do what I say? Whoever comes to me and hears my sayings and does them, I'll show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when the flood arose, the stream beat vehemently against that house and could not shake it, for it was founded on the rock. But he who heard and did nothing is like a man who built a house on the earth without a foundation against which the stream beat vehemently, and immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. So he says... Listening to God and doing what he says, not listening to everyone else, not worrying about what's going to happen, not being all paranoid, just you listen to God and you do what he says and you be okay not doing things that he hasn't said. And he said, what you're doing is building a house that's going to last. There's a foundation of good fruit, of acting like him, of obeying his word. And doing what he tells you to do, there's a foundation that builds a building, a house that's strong. So often with our lives, we go run out and do everything, and the foundation isn't there. Tough times come along, and it's just all blown away. 
It's one reason why the Bible talked about not laying hands on someone suddenly for ministry. It's not a big hurry, spiritual growth. It's not like, let's cram because I want to be the most spiritual person I know. No, just one little chunk at a time. You do what he tells you to do. You'd be satisfied with what he's doing in your life. Get your eyes off other people. Get your ears off everything except him. And ultimately, that is foundational. That is something that will last. That's the kind of life that you really want to live. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for what you've taught us. Help us to obey what you've told us tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.